This is your Professor Debbie. Welcome to True Crime University, where we have intellectual discussions about crime. This is a class for mature audiences with mature language and subject matter. Our purpose is to learn about criminals, not glorify them. And my aim, as always, is education. Hello, class. How's everybody today? Today, I have a special episode for you. And this one is a request. It's for Cheryl. And at the end, I will tell you what's special about it. So I want to make sure that I do a really good job on it. It's probably going to be two parts. And as I mentioned last week, it is about some child murders. There's nothing sexual involved, but it is the murders of kids. So if that's something you don't want to listen to, then go ahead and skip class. But today we're going to talk about John Jubert. We're going to start in the town of Lawrence, Massachusetts, which is located on the Merrimack River in the northern part of the state near the border with New Hampshire. So John Joseph Jubert IV, which would be JJJ4, was born there on July 2nd, 1963, to parents Joseph, who went by Jack, and Beverly. He had a sister, Jane, two years younger, who would ironically grow up to be a police officer. Jack and Beverly managed a family restaurant called, fittingly enough, Jubert's Diner in the early years, and when it closed, Jack worked as a cook and waiter and another diner, while Beverly worked as a bookkeeper. It was no secret that the Juberts were unhappy. Beverly slept on the couch and was known to be stern, domineering, and uncaring. John recalled later that his mom would often scream at his dad and throw shit at him, and him and his sister would run and hide. The kids spent much of their time with a babysitter, a young woman whose name I don't know and doesn't matter anyway, while their parents worked. And John would eventually come to resent this babysitter. He had overheard her telling his mother that his dad was no good and she should leave him. The family was Catholic, so they weren't open to divorce. Rather, they stayed together and made themselves and their kids miserable. Years later, when John was in prison, spoiler alert, he ends up in prison, his mother told him that one time when he was about four, he witnessed an incident where she was fighting with his dad and he choked her and she lost consciousness. And obviously he had repressed that because he didn't remember it. So who knows how many other instances of violence that he had seen and repressed. I mean, you, we can only imagine what this kid saw. And it also reminds me of Myra Hindley. I don't know if you remember her from last year. Um, remember the Moors murderers? Her parents fought when she was young, and she witnessed this all the time. And she came to learn that violence was how you handled problems. So I'm thinking maybe this is what happened to John throughout his very young years. And this is when, as a kid, you're the most susceptible to your environment, especially to what your parents are doing. 
to see them hollering at each other, hurling shit at each other, and physically hurting each other would probably be very impressionable on you. And you might very well learn that violence is the proper way to handle things. John said years later that he was around six when he started to fantasize about killing people, especially his babysitter, and, wait, it gets worse, also eating her, partly as a punishment for trying to break up his family, so he thought, partly out of what he would describe as a lifetime desire to find out what it was like to kill somebody. And I'm trying to think of when I was six, which I do have a clear recollection of. Think back to when you were six. What did you fantasize about? Well, I was really into amusement parks, and I knew that Disney World existed, and I wanted to go for a while. So I probably fantasized about going to Disney World. I probably fantasized about staying home from school. I think that's pretty safe to say about getting fun presents for Christmas, like fun toys and stuff, but killing people? Absolutely not. So from the age of six, John is headed down a path of destructiveness. It was said that he could read when he was three, and he checked books out of the library at age five. So somebody must have done something right. If your kid can read that young, it means you're either reading to them or encouraging them to read, or somebody had to have taken him to the library. So, I mean, it doesn't cancel out the beating and yelling and all that stuff, but I'm just saying I found it interesting that there must have been a, a little, at least, iota of good parenting going on. He was later found to have an IQ of about 123, which is in the superior range. And in case you didn't know, it's a myth that all serial killers are smart. The brilliant serial killer that outsmarts the FBI and police and everybody else is just that. It's a myth. And I know it's fun to see on TV and read about in books, but those are few and far between. Both his home life and school life were miserable for John. He was always very small. And as an adult, he only grew to a total of like five feet, six inches. For his entire school life, from kindergarten to high school, he was bullied and picked on by everybody else for his size. Plus, there was just something weird about him. They also, you know how rotten kids are. If you have any kind of name, really, they'll make fun of it. Well, they called him Jujubee. Which, compared to the, all the other stuff they did, I think is pretty mild. When he was six, his parents finally divorced, and he moved with his mom and sister to a shitty apartment in a rundown section of town, while his dad stayed in the house in Lawrence, the house, you know, that he'd grown up in. And his mother forbade him and his sister from visiting their dad, who lived in the neighborhood. And John said that his mom was strict, demanding, controlling, and we're later going to find out that he actually had to pay for his own high school, and he wasn't allowed to get a driver's license when he turned 16. In 1974, when John was 11, they moved north to Portland, Maine, 
which is a blue-collar town on the Atlantic. He did like the town and their house, which was a duplex that they shared with another family. And they lived in a nice middle-class neighborhood called Oakdale. Because he was still technically forbidden from visiting his dad, sometimes he would ride his bike the 88 miles, which would be like at least an hour and a half each way just to see his dad. And his mom never gave him any money for travel or anything like that. The way John described his mom to people, she was like a cartoonish evil mother figure, constantly belittling him, not letting him have friends, talking shit on his dad, spanking him till he was 12. Now keep this in mind, as I'm sure you know, it's a common characteristic of male serial killers to have a bossy or even abusive mother. I think we see that a lot. So often I think that it's become kind of like a caricature, you know. I mentioned that John was teased and bullied for being small, but at some point he went from being bullied to being a bully. Like, I guess he started to take all this rage that he had collected from people abusing him, and he decided to start handing it out. He would harass other kids to the point that they were afraid of him. There was this one incident recalled by his sixth grade teacher that, well, obviously he was in sixth grade, and the teacher was doing a science experiment on electricity. And he had, I don't know, it was like maybe five or six kids. John was not one of them stand at the front of the class, and they all held hands. And he had a, I think it was a telephone, and he said, okay, everybody watch this, but the other kids that are watching, nobody touch the five kids that are in line, because it'll shock them. And the idea, of course, was to see the static electricity pass through the kids who are holding hands. So what does John do? but reaches out and pokes one of the kids who was in line, and it happened to be somebody that had bullied him. And the kid's like, ow! And uh, the teacher's like, John, what did you do that for? I told you not to touch them. So this is an example of how he would do something that's deliberately cruel. Even though the kid was somebody who had bullied him, I still think it's interesting to see a kid that young being deliberately cruel. So one day when he was about 12, one of the kids in school asked him if he was gay. And remember, this is early 70s. So being gay or homosexual was not really the the cool thing. John only knew the meaning of gay as happy and carefree. And he said, yeah, I'm gay. So you can only imagine what happened. The other kid was like laughing hysterically and he's like, I knew it, I knew it. So he runs off to tell everybody else, hey, John Jubert's gay. Everybody has a good laugh. And if they could avoid him even more than they already did, they did. So now he was like extra teased and bullied. There was another boy named Brian that he went to school with who was also picked on. I don't know for what stupid reason he was. So Brian and John formed kind of a bond and became friends. 
and this would be the first out of only two known friends that John ever had. John did join a lot of activities. He was an older boy, which is ironic. He was on the track team. He was a Boy Scout, and he would eventually reach the rank of Eagle Scout when he was 17, being only 4% of Boy Scouts to ever attain this. He also played the trumpet, so he tried to be active. He did stuff. When he was 11 or 12, he started having fantasies about hurting people. And these are a little bit more advanced than the Eat the Babysitter one when he was six. First, of course, was the babysitter. Then it would be people at school. Then it would be just random people that he saw on the street. He would fantasize about stabbing or strangling them and tying up and gagging those who resisted. Years later, him and a prison psychiatrist figured out that these fantasies were like escape valves in which he could forget problems like being bullied and family problems. He had these fantasies more when he was under stress, which makes sense if you think about it. And he's quoted as saying, I would think these thoughts, and that would relieve the tension. I have learned that it made me feel better, and as I grew up, it became a habit, end quote. Now, as we know, the only problem with fantasies is that sometimes they don't always stay fantasies. John was actually quite industrious as a kid. He started out having a paper route at 12. Remember that? He delivered newspapers. He did that till he was 17. With the money he earned, he paid for his own tuition at a private all-boys Catholic school called Chevrolet High School. Now, I've heard of kids having jobs. I mean, I had one when I was a teenager. I flipped hot dogs. I hated it. And I bought, like, typical teenage girl stuff like clothes and jewelry and shit. But I've never heard of a kid actually paying for his own private school tuition. Despite all the activities he was involved in, he still spent most of his time alone. One of his hobbies was building model airplanes. And he just seemed like one of those people that no matter how many groups he's in or how many clubs he belongs to, he was never quite accepted and was always an outsider. Whether this was by choice or not, I am not sure, but he never went on a date. He never kissed a girl or boy. He did go to the prom. But it was just like he found some random girl and was like, hey, do you want to go to the prom? And she was like, sure, and end of story, if you know what I mean. And by the time he died, spoiler alert, he had never had sexual intercourse with any human being. So remember I mentioned his best friend, Brian, who was one of probably only two friends that Jubert ever had in his life. One time he came home from, I believe it was spending the summer with his dad and his mom, who, if we can believe John, sounds like she was a royal bitch. She's like, oh, by the way, Brian moved away. So, of course, John's devastated because that's his best and only friend. And he's like, well, where did he go? She's like, I don't know. And he's like, well, can... 
you help me find them so I can write him a letter or call him or something? And she supposedly was just like, oh, just forget about him. And this would depress and upset any kid. But unfortunately for John Jubert, this depression that he went into would have bad consequences. So in 1979, when John was about 16, he worked at the library. And on his way home, he noticed a boy walking down the street in front of him. It was a busy intersection. He decides to kind of follow behind him for a while. And he calls out to the kid, hey, wait a minute. So the kid stops and turns around and looks at him. And he stopped near a bank. And John said he was amazed how easy it was to get this kid's attention and make him stop. And he says to the kid, what's your name? And he said, Chris. John said, how old are you? And Chris said, eight. What do you want from me? So Jubert grabbed little Chris by the throat, shoved him against the building, the bank. Chris is lashing around, struggling. So John squeezed his windpipe so that he couldn't breathe. Imagine how an eight-year-old kid, how small their neck would be. And I'm sure that John could easily do this with one hand. Fortunately, Chris got loose and he ran away, trying not to slip on the ice. John stood there and watched him go. And he thought, I'm bigger than him. I could go after him and catch him if I want, but I'll have another chance. And this will be the first time that he actively sought another person in order to hurt them. And we're going to see that this turns into a pattern. The next month, November, he had started what we call trolling, which is when a serial killer or a predator walks around looking for victims. And this he did while he was delivering his morning papers. But it was on his way home from school that he saw a figure, and he couldn't tell if it was a boy or a girl because whoever it was was so bundled up. Remember, this is Maine, so it's cold up there, and this is November. They had on like a big coat, and he couldn't tell the gender of the person. Turns out it was a girl, but he didn't care because we're going to see, strangely, his target wasn't really males or females. And I think that it was just people smaller than him. And remember, he's, as an adult, was only five, six. So the number of people that are smaller than him is going to be kind of low. But that's who he targeted. So he called out, hey. She stopped and turned around and looked at him. And he says, come here. And she said, why? And he said, I want to talk to you. And he thinks she was between seven and nine. She said, are you going to take me home? And he was amazed that she didn't seem afraid of him. She said, I have a doctor's appointment. I have to go. So he said, go ahead. Wasn't sure why, but he watched her walk away. The next kid he encountered wouldn't be so lucky. It was December 11th, the following month. It was about four in the afternoon. A nine-year-old girl named Sarah was playing on the sidewalk in front of her yard. She was playing with a football, and she dropped it. And unfortunately, she didn't notice that there was a boy on a green bike coming up pretty fast behind her. 
She bent down to grab the football, and all of a sudden she felt a shooting, stabbing pain in her back. It felt like her back was on fire. Crying hysterically, as of course anybody would, she ran inside, and her parents found a one-quarter of an inch deep puncture wound on her back. This is through her coat and her clothes, and the weapon that she had been stabbed with was a pencil. And I'm still trying to figure out how pencil can make that deep of a puncture wound through a coat and clothes. It's just not computing in my mind for some reason, but it definitely was a pencil because they saw it lying there on the sidewalk where this had happened. So they called the police, and the girl gave as good as a description of the boy on the bike as she could. And that was pretty much about it. They wouldn't know until years later that her assail assailant had been John Jubert. What was the most disturbing about this incident is that when Sarah screamed in pain, John found that he was sexually aroused, which, if you've been paying attention in class, you know means that he is a sexual sadist. He gets pleasure from other people's pain. The next person he attacked was under very different circumstances. It was the next month, January 24th of 1980, 6.30 in the evening. This was a 27-year-old woman named Vicki. She was on her way to class at the University of Maine, and she was walking along Deering Avenue. She noticed a young guy walking toward her on the street. She noticed he was thin and short, had it on, on a cap. Yeah, because it's January. They pass each other. A few seconds later, she hears somebody running behind her, and it's the same dude. Then he crosses the street and keeps pace with her, which made her uncomfortable. She's like, what in the world is wrong with this dude? So they're walking, like on the same sidewalk, and she decided to make conversation with him. And she says, cold out tonight, isn't it? He didn't say anything. He just walked on ahead. She walked on. It was like they're in this bizarre cat and mouse game. Then she hears footsteps behind her. She started to turn around, but a hand with a mitten reached around and grabbed her over her nose and mouth. And she felt a sting in her right back. This was really bad pain. Like she felt like she was on fire. She gasped, fell down to her knees, and looked up at this kid. And she said his face was blank. Like, no emotion at all. She was able to stumble to her feet and run, came to the first house she saw, and she was banging on the door. She could see that there was an old man inside, and she's screaming. She's like, help, I've been stabbed. Open the door, help me. And this dude, for whatever reason, just wouldn't open the door. So now she's getting weak, losing blood. She's swaying. She finally made it to her college building where she would get help. And it turned out she had been punctured with a knife in her abdominal cavity, and she was in serious condition in the hospital. She would be in there recovering for a week. So later that night, when he was in bed, John heard on the radio that a woman had been attacked on her way to class and that she was in serious condition, so he smiled. He was all proud of himself that he had seriously wounded somebody. Two days later... He was walking home from school, and a cop car pulls up. And the officer says to him, 
A woman was attacked near here a couple nights ago. We're trying to find people who might have been around. And John is kind of like, oh, shit. You know, he gets nervous. And the cop says, what's your name? He says, John Jubert. He said, where do you live? He points. He says, just down the road there. The cop says, okay, thanks. And they drive away. So John breathed a sigh of relief. He felt safe now. But he also felt superior. Like, not only am I safe, but, like, he pulled one over on the cops. Like, look, here I am, literally right under their nose. And they're looking for this crazy dude who's going around stabbing people. And you know what happens to offenders, violent offenders, when they keep getting away with stuff is they get cocky and they tend to escalate. They think, well, I've gotten away with everything so far. I think I'm going to push my luck a little bit next time. And next time I'll push my luck a little bit more. And they keep doing this and they keep doing this. And we're going to see that's what happens here. The last attack by Jubert that wasn't a murder happened on March 24th of 1980. So if that date's right, he should have been about 16. There was a nine-year-old kid named Michael walking along the sidewalk in the city, and he heard somebody call out to him. So he stops, looking around like, you know, who's calling me? He sees an older boy standing on top of a hill across the street. He waves at him, and he said, hey, come here. So he, he hesitates. He's like, you know, what? Who's this dude? So he went across the street, up the hill to where the other kid was, and he said, what? And this other boy, who, of course, we know is John, said, where do you live? He said, way down there. And Michael points. He said, what street? And before Michael could say anything, John said, how old are you? And by now, Michael's confused. He's like, what the hell is going on here? And he just looked at him. So John goes, look down there. This is a trick. I think it's used by magicians. It's called misdirection. He said, look down there. So Michael looks in the direction that John's pointing, which gives John the opportunity to pull out an X-Acto knife from his pocket and slash Michael's throat. This happened so fast that Michael didn't realize what had happened. All of a sudden, he sees blood spilling everywhere, and he's like, oh, shit. So he tries to yell out, but he, he couldn't. He broke away from the other kid, stumbled, running in the snow. He's screaming, and he's running home, holding his throat, and blood's just oozing everywhere. Imagine how scary that would be. I cut my finger on a kitchen knife the other night, and I got all freaked out because I'm, well, I'm just weird. But this kid's nine years old, and his throat was cut. He finally gets home, and, and of course, they take him to the hospital. His cut was two inches long and took 12 stitches to close. If it would have been a little bit deeper, a little bit longer, or he would have lived a little bit farther away, he very well could have died. So now law enforcement and the neighborhood were aware of some wacko kid who's running around this neighborhood, which is a two-mile radius of John's home on Cottage Street, hurting people, and they started calling him the Woodford Slasher. I mentioned that John was in Scouts. 
and he goes to a scout meeting. One of the older scouts is talking to the younger boys, and he warns them, watch out for the Woodford Slasher. And they're giving the younger scouts like safety tips. And John would later say that only then did he realize that he'd actually cause pain and frighten people. I find that a little bit hard to believe. Like, you cut a little kid on their neck with a an exacto knife, and he's bleeding all over the place, and you don't realize you caused him pain? Like, really, dude? I find that hard to buy. But I guess he kind of had it like an epiphany. Like, wow, I'm really scaring people. I'm really doing damage to my community. People are on the lookout for me. And I think he thought that if he doesn't do something about himself, like slow down, he might get caught. So he did. And this is going to bust another myth about serial killers that you hear. Like once they start killing, they lose control and they can't be stopped. And that's not true. They can stop. They stop themselves all the time. Lonnie Franklin, the Grim Sleeper we talked about, he was able to stop for several years. Dennis Rader, the BTK killer, he stopped himself for a long time. There's a lot of them that do, especially if they get involved in something else. Maybe they get married or they get a new job or some other hobby or responsibility catches their interest and they have to focus on this other thing instead of going out and victimizing people. They absolutely can stop and they can control themselves. So what John does with himself to keep him busy is he graduates from high school. He graduated with like a two-point something or other average grades. He enrolled in Norwich University in Vermont, a military college, where he majored in engineering. However, like many of us, he found that he much preferred going out and partying to studying and also playing video games in arcades. This was like the early 80s. I don't know if any of you were around then, but we had these things called arcades, mostly in malls, where they had all these video games like Pac-Man was my favorite, and apparently Asteroids was John's favorite because he would often make a joke that his favorite class was Asteroids 101. He tried drinking for the first time, as many college people do, and also tried weed, which also many people do. But he found that he didn't care for either one. He did find a new hobby, which was the game Dungeons and Dragons. So I'm not going to make a big deal out of this, because this game has unfairly been, I guess, accused of, I don't know what, putting weird ideas in kids' head or, you know, the satanic panic having to do with demons, and which is all total bullshit. I think we all know that. But it is a fantasy game, and you do pretend that you're other people, other like fantasy beings in this game. So it is really a perfect um, attraction to kids like John who don't fit in, feel like they don't fit into the rest of society. Nerds. There's nothing wrong with being a nerd. There is something wrong with going around 
slashing and poking people, definitely. But a nerd? No. John liked to be the dungeon master, or DM. And that, if you don't know, is the person who controls the game. Usually designs the maze that the other players go through and kind of controls what happens to the other players. And with the position of Dungeon Master comes kind of a power. And like I said, I don't want to read too much into it, but I do find it interesting that John was so attracted to the role of Dungeon Master. It really fits in with what we know about him. He didn't go back to college because he got shitty grades and his mother was bitching at him and she, I'm paraphrasing, I don't know if she said this, she probably did. She's probably like, dude, you're a loser. You flunk out of college. You can't get a job. You're, you know, you're going to have to start pulling your weight around here, blah, blah, blah. So eventually, John, like many people who are in this situation, they feel like they're kind of in a dead end, don't know where to go or what to do, join the military. But in the meantime, what he liked to do was ride his bike to a place called Back Cove in Portland. I saw a couple pictures of this place. It's beautiful. It's a three and a half mile long waterfront walk and bike trail, which loops around a tidal basin. Somebody else who liked this trail was 11-year-old Ricky Stetson, who lived on Hanover Street in Portland. And on the evening of August 22nd, 1982, little Ricky, who was said to be small for his age, and he had bright red hair and freckles, real lively, like sports, like baseball and basketball. His dad said he was always jogging around the house. His parents were named Edward and Dolores, and he had older brothers named Steve and Dawn. So this particular evening, August 22nd, Ricky, who would have been in sixth grade, was out jogging with his two brothers. And he says, I'm not tired of jogging yet. I want to run around the cove. And one of the brothers says, are you crazy? We're going home. Go ahead. Knock yourself out. So Ricky's a few blocks away from his home and his dad pulls up in his car. He was on patrol for a security agency that he owned. And he's like, oh, what what you doing? Where are you going? You know, and the Ricky's like, I'm jogging. I'll be home soon. So it kept getting later and later. No Ricky. It was getting dark. His dad would say that it wasn't unusual for him to be playing with friends and, quote, horsing around in front of the house until 11 p.m. or so, end quote. And that's what us kids of the 80s did back in those days. We would just run around with friends outside until we couldn't anymore. Eventually, they realized that Ricky was missing, so they called the police about midnight and reported him missing. At about 7 o'clock the next morning, his body was found by a woman. He was laying in the grass under a footbridge. 30 feet from Washington Avenue. When the police found his body, they first thought that it had been a hit and run just because of where he was so close to a road and the way he was laying. He was laying on his side 
and his blood-covered hand was on his stomach. His pants were half down. He had been strangled and stabbed in the chest. And the police were mystified by a large, like, gouge out of his leg. And then upon closer examination, they realized that whoever killed him had bitten him, like, bit a chunk out of his leg. And then maybe thought, I better not do that. It might leave teeth marks and tried to cut the teeth marks out. But what this person didn't realize, fortunately, was teeth marks go more than skin deep. So they were still able to get the tooth impressions. The police start questioning witnesses, of course, and they would talk to at least 50 different people. There were a number of witnesses who said that just before nine o'clock, they saw Ricky running on the trail in the park on Baxter Boulevard. And there was a young guy with dark hair on a bike right behind him. And many people said they thought that they were together, like maybe this was his older brother or something. That's how close he was to him. Unfortunately, we now know that that young man was John Jubert. And this was his first murder. They did indict a 24-year-old guy for the murder. Apparently, he was fishy. But they ended up dropping the charges against him because his bite marks didn't match those on Ricky. This is a good place to stop. And when we come back next week, we're going to talk about his other murders. And I have a good amount of detail on psychology and profiling, which... I always like. Just to give you a little bit of a teaser, Robert Ressler from the then, at the time, new FBI's Behavioral Science Unit was in Nebraska on this case because we're going to move to Nebraska next week. And he developed a profile that we'll go over. And he later interviewed Jubert in prison. So when Robert Ressler speaks, I listen. And hopefully you do too next week. Okay, class dismissed.